Welcome. I'm Jeff Carls, the Executive Director at the Institute on Religious Life, and this is the Institute's new podcast series called Ever Ancient, Ever New. Today we will be celebrating our 2023 Institute on Religious Life Pro Fidelitate et Vertute Award recipient, Mr. Carl Anderson. Carl Anderson was a Supreme Knight of the Knights of Columbus from 2000 to 2021. During his time in office, the Knights of Columbus saw growth in membership, insurance and charitable giving, as well as the institution of many new initiatives. The order continued to support priestly and religious vocations and were very generous to the Institute on Religious Life's mission and work. Mr. Anderson has had a distinguished career as a public servant and educator. From 1983 to 1987, he served in various positions of the Executive Office of the President of the United States, including Special Assistant to the President and Acting Director of the White House Office of Public Liaison. Following his service at the White House, Mr. Anderson served for nearly a decade as a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. From 1983 to 1998, Mr. Anderson taught as a visiting professor of family law at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family at the Pontifical Lateran University in Rome. In 1988, he became the founding vice president and first dean of the Washington, D.C. session of its Graduate School of Theology now located at the Catholic University of America. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, A Civilization of Love, What Every Catholic Can Do to Transform the World, co-author of Our Lady of Guadalupe, Mother of the Civilization of Love, also a New York Times bestseller, co-editor of The Way of Love, Reflections on Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical Deus Caritas Est, co-author of Called to Love, Approaching John Paul II's Theology of the Body, author of Beyond a House Divided, The Moral Consensus Ignored by Washington, Wall Street, and the Media. The number of distinguished positions held by Mr. Anderson are too numerous to mention in this short podcast. But a couple of more notables are worth mentioning. He has served as a consultant for the Pro-Life Committee of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops since 2002. During Mr. Anderson's tenure as Supreme Knight, the Knights of Columbus achieved new heights in charitable giving, providing in 2017 alone over $185.6 million directly to charity and more than 700 million hours in volunteer service. Supreme Knight Anderson led the Knights in a variety of charitable endeavors, including establishing the Heroes Fund to provide immediate assistance to the families of the first responders who lost their lives in the terrorist attack on September 11, 2001. Mr. Anderson holds degrees in philosophy from Seattle University and in law from the University of Denver. He is a member of the Bar of the District of Columbia and is admitted to practice law before the U.S. Supreme Court. He and his wife, Dorian, are the parents of five children. We are so delighted and honored to have Carl Anderson as our 2023 Pro Fidelitate et Vertute Award recipient, and we will be listening today to his award acceptance speech. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy this podcast. Well, thank you all very much. 
I have to say that uh, the greatest blessing in my life, in addition to marrying Dorian, has been uh, the many gifts that so many priests and religious women have, have given me uh, throughout my life. And so if uh, any of the things that I was able to do, and some of them you've listed uh, tonight, were really in uh, grateful appreciation and trying to maybe make up for everything that you've given me and my family. So I want to take this opportunity to thank you for that. And so, you know, I'm very honored, obviously, to receive this award from you tonight uh, uh, because of how much I admire the Institute on Religious Life uh, for all that you've done to enhance uh, the saving mission of the Catholic Church in America. It has been a privilege as Supreme Knight to assist you in your work and to uh, assist in many ways so many of the communities that are so active. Uh, in your institute. Now I'm sure you're all familiar with the uh, study last year of Catholic priests done by the Catholic University of America that found a significant difference in the sense of well-being uh, between diocesan priests and religious priests. And I think uh, one of the big reasons for that difference uh, is the work that you have been doing for so many years uh, to strengthen a religious life in America. Uh, you are one of our church's great resources. And to see that next year is your 50th anniversary, it is a time for not only your great celebration, but I think everyone, every Catholic in America should offer you a sign of appreciation and gratitude for what you've done. You may also be familiar with a recent Wall Street Journal poll that was released last month uh, stating a dramatic drop in the percentage of Americans who say that religion is very important to them. Uh, the percentage fell from 62% of Americans in 1998 to 39% of Americans last month. And only 31% of younger Americans said that religion was very important to them and only 34% of Americans said that their religion is essential to their identity. And only 13% of Americans today go to church services on a weekly basis. So clearly, secularism is gaining ground in America today. Uh, and the National Pre-Survey and that Wall Street Journal poll uh, is the context of what I want to talk about for a few minutes with you tonight. Nearly four decades ago, uh, Father Joseph Ratzinger looked at the growth of secularism and he said this, What challenges us more than even the question of whether God exists is the question of whether after 2,000 years of Christianity, we can see anything that is new. And at almost the same time, Father Hans Urs von Balthasar wrote that the challenge of secularism today required a decisive Christian witness, a witness by those who offer themselves unconditionally to God 
and who have placed Christ's love at the center of their lives. You have answered that call. You have answered that challenge in a most dramatic way by the choice of your vocation and your holy dedication to it. And your experience of faith, your dedication and joy are needed now more in America than ever. And they're needed by your fellow Catholics today now more than ever. This, I think, is the moment of your decisive Catholic witness. Today in a society that all around us evidences clear signs of cultural collapse, Catholics need to affirm what it is that Christ brings that is new. Your leadership can inspire this witness by Catholics across our country. And for most of our history, and as many of you know, Catholics in America have been caught between two great millstones. Since the earliest days of colonial America, Catholics have been challenged by the dominant Protestant culture. We could say that American Protestantism and its culture is that first great millstone. We could go through lots of examples, but I'll, I'll take just one. Soon after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the Continental Congress decided to send a delegation to Quebec, headed up by Benjamin Franklin and Charles Carroll. Their mission was to convince the French Catholics of Canada to join the American cause of independence. Uh, the Catholics thought about it for a while in Canada, and the answer came back, no thank you. Catholics in Canada, they said, are treated better than the British, than your fellow American colonists treat you in the United States, in America. Without going into detail as to what was going on in colonial America at the time, perhaps it is enough to observe that one of the most, perhaps the most popular game in colonial America during the time of the signing of the Declaration of Independence was a game called Break the Pope's Neck. Alex de Tocqueville wrote, uh, the destiny of America was embodied in the first Puritan who landed on those shores. Well, we may no longer be subjected to the coarseness of Protestant ministers lecturing their congregations on the dangers of Romanism versus Americanism. But I think a general cultural bias still exists. The crux of the problem, it seems to me, is that to the extent that Protestantism has influenced American culture, it has done so in ways compatible with Protestant forms of Christianity and not with the Catholic way of following Christ through an integrated, coherent, sacramental life. The sacraments make the Catholic Church, and pressures that weaken the sacramental life of Catholics also deeply affect the experiential reality of our Church as the body of Christ. Ronald Reagan once observed that we are still Jefferson's children, 
Now, he, at the time, he was speaking about Jefferson's legacy in terms of uh, American liberty. But Jefferson is an American archetype. And the former Librarian of Congress, Daniel Burstein, has remarked that Jefferson, quote, accomplished for American civilization something like St. Augustine did for medieval Christendom, unquote. And then Burstein went on to say that, quote, Jeffersonian Christianity has hardly a rich or spacious doctrine. It consisted of little more than the moral maxims of Christ. But making Christianity simpler, Boerstein said, Jefferson had made it more credible and in a way more acceptable and more popular. And that I think is precisely the problem. Jefferson was a practicing Episcopalian. He was married in the Episcopal Church. He went to Episcopal Sunday services. He carried his own copy of the Book of Common Prayer. And he raised his children in the Episcopalian faith. And at the same time, as I think most of us know, he edited his own copy of the New Testament, uh, what came to be known as the Jefferson Bible, uh, by removing what he considered to be the absurdities the untruths, the falsifications that he thought had been manufactured by Jesus' disciples. In other words, Jefferson removed from the New Testament all the passages dealing with the miracles and the divinity of Jesus. Moreover, Jefferson refused to serve as godfather to the uh, children of his friends, saying he was unable to do so because he could not profess belief in those irrational doctrines such as the Trinity or the Incarnation. Now the Protestant theologian Karl Barth has explained that this about 18th century Protestantism, that for the man of the 18th century, Barth wrote, nature was the embodiment of what was at the disposal of man himself his spirit, his understanding, his will, and his feeling, what it was that he himself could shape. And thus, Barth continued, Christianity simply means a Christianity that presents itself to man in a manner appropriate to his natural capacity. For Jefferson's, man's capacity was reason, and that left little room or little necessity for the working of God's grace, sacramental or otherwise. So in Jefferson's New Testament, it is nature, not grace, that is sufficient for you. Nor does Jefferson seem to be very concerned with uh, St. Paul's admonition, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? In the age of reason, the world was renewing men's minds so that they might discern what is good 
and acceptable and perfect about Christianity. A devoted son of the age of reason, Jefferson thought it only natural that Christianity be measured by and be made to conform to the demands of reason. After all, the Norvos Ordo Seclorum that was being established in the New World was intended to put away those limitations on man's capacity imposed by the superstitions and decayed, corrupt institutions of the Old World. But perhaps we should not be too hard on Jefferson because after all, as Brad Gregory of the University of Notre Dame described the problems Jefferson inherited after the religious wars in Europe, the problem is this, incompatible Catholic and Protestant views about the meaning of God's actions created an intellectually sterile impasse because of the objections they inevitably provoke from theological opponents and the intractable doctrinal controversies they consistently, constantly reinforce. So what was left as a means of understanding the natural world? Only reason. And he concludes, reason bore the full burden of the endeavor to understand God's relationship to the natural world. Therefore, all theology that sought to avoid confessional controversy had to be natural philosophy based on reason alone. So Jefferson hollowed out the inner core of Christian belief to accommodate the spirit of the times while maintaining the outward appearance of religious practice. So, too many Americans may still be Jefferson's children in this regard. Judging Christianity by what society says is acceptable while seeking to avoid confessional controversies and in the process reducing the supernatural to the function and the capacity of the natural. We can see all, see all around us, I think, uh, the Jeffersonian reordering of Christianity away from a response to the crucified Trinitarian love of God to that of a religiously inspired ethical system. To allow such a reordering of Catholicism would be to radically contradict what is at the heart of the Church's canon of sanctity and permit the emergence of what von Balthasar once described as a neo-Catholicism. So this brings us to the second millstone, which is secular culture. And here too, Jefferson seems to be the representative. This phenomena is not simply that people are turning away from God. As Charles Taylor observes in his classic, A Secular Age, we are in a period of transition, of a move from a society where belief of God was unchallenged and indeed unproblematic, to a society in which it is understood that Christ belief in God is simply one option and often the most problematic and most difficult. 
So this transition is being promoted by an increasingly militant atheism, which I think we all are sufficiently witnessed, and was brilliantly described more than half a century ago by Henri de Lubac in his classic, The Drama of Atheist Humanism. Now, particular concern to Catholics, it seems to me, should be the prevailing secular assumption that the Christian conception of God within a sacramental worldview is incompatible with science and reason. But what is even more problematic are there other assumptions of secular culture that while they do not attack belief directly, create an environment that makes it exceedingly difficult to be Catholic. Now Taylor repeats several such assumptions which I'm sure we're all familiar with. He says, most of us in America believe a few simple propositions that seem so clear and self-evident they scarcely need to be said. For example, choice is a good thing in life, and the more of it we have, the happier we are. Authority is inherently suspect, and nobody should have the right to tell others what to think or how to behave. And sin isn't personal, it's social. Individual human beings are, after all, creatures of the society they live in. Well, these assumptions are part of a host of shared criteria supporting modern secular values of pluralism, relativism, and personal autonomy, values foundational to American democracy, and which many Catholics, as good citizens, uncritically accept. These values also seamlessly contextualize for many Catholics, their understanding and practice of the faith. Such assumptions don't directly challenge a belief in God, but they subtly, if subtly affect how we practice our Catholic faith. We typically think of how some Catholics disregard church teaching on the life issues and the cognitive dissonance created by lifestyle choices and how that dissonance gradually alienates individuals from the community of, of Catholic believers. My point tonight is that these pressures not only affect Catholic attitudes about the moral life, but they also affect Catholic attitudes about the sacramental life and sacramental practice. What's more, they do so in ways that some Catholics do not seem to see as a problem. If values of tolerance and pluralism and personal autonomy are essential to what it means to be a good American, why should they not also be essential to what it means to be a good Catholic? Catholics experience constant pressure to accommodate the cultural demands of Protestantism on the one hand and secularism on the other hand. Day after day, these millstones grind away at what is unique about Catholic belief, unique about Catholic worship, and unique about the Catholic way of life. So what is to be done? In preparing the church for the 21st century, St. John Paul II wrote in Novo Millennio Eneonte, it is not a matter of inventing a new program. The program already exists. 
It is the plan found in the gospel and in the living tradition. The hard reality is that the more the church, with all good intentions, takes up the forms of bureaucratic action and corporate strategic planning, the less it looks like the kingdom of God. That is why, that is why, the witness of religious communities and their lived experience of the faith is so vitally needed today. I would suggest the program needed now is the renewal of an authentically Catholic identity, an identity that is genuine, engaging, and evangelizing, and which, therefore, is a sacramentally-based Catholic life centered on the encounter with the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And your meeting under that theme, Encountering Our Lord Through the Eucharist, is an important event. It's a very important event as part of the National Eucharistic Revival. Nothing could be more important to the future of the Catholic Church in America. The Eucharist is not just a memory receding farther and farther in the past as our Protestant friends would have us believe. Instead, it is the origin of what is forever present and living in our lives as Catholics. It is the very center of our Christian life, and it is the light that illuminates all that surrounds us. It is at the center of the process of the church's growth and life, and it builds the church. A Catholic community without the Eucharist is simply no longer the Catholic Church. So what, we, what are we to say about Catholics who no longer believe in the Lord's real presence in the Eucharist? Perhaps in this context it is worth remembering uh, at the 1529 Marburg Colloquium between Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, they agreed on 14 of the 15 propositions. The one they did not agree on was the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And that disagreement created a chasm between Lutheran and Reformed Protestantism that has continued down to this day because both of those Protestant leaders understood that how you consider the Lord's Supper determines how you follow the Lord. Agreement on the other 14 items, as important as they all were, could not bridge that gap. And it is symptomatic of modern notions of pluralism that so many today see the, this confessional difference regarding the Lord's <laughs> Supper to be of secondary importance. Now, Rudolf Otto writes in his wonderful study, The Idea of the Holy, quote, It is one thing merely to believe in a reality beyond the senses, and it is another thing to have experience of it also. It is one thing to have ideas of the holy, and another to become consciously aware of it as an operative reality intervening actively in the phenomenal world. In renewing the Eucharistic life of Catholics, we might recall John Paul II's advice when he declared, 
October 2004 to October 2005, right, the last year of his life, to be the year of the Eucharist. He repeatedly urged us to develop what he called the cultivation of Eucharistic life. And nothing could be more important to the sustainability of Catholicism in America than the cultivation of an authentic Eucharistic life among American Catholics. But just what is the cultivation of Eucharistic life? What does that mean? I mean, cultivate, of course, comes from the Latin word colere, meaning to toil over, to tend to, to care for, to protect, and to honor. It's a essentially practical word. To cultivate is to go beyond just throwing out the seeds. It, it means in the Middle Ages, it emerged as an intentional form of agriculture, carefully preparing the soil so as to improve the yield of the seeds that had been sown. In contemporary usage, we could say cultivate can also mean educated, refined, cultured. So as we approach the year, focusing on parish life of the National Eucharistic Revival, is it not time to begin to build up in parish communities a cultivated Eucharistic life among Catholic believers? St. John Paul II also encouraged us to stand with Mary at the foot of the cross during the Eucharistic year, to contemplate the face of Christ, to develop a Eucharistic spirituality with Mary, who he called the woman of the Eucharist. So upon the Eucharist and with Mary, we can renew a Catholic identity in America for the 21st century that powerfully answers the question of what Christ brings that is new. In living this mystery of a Eucharistic life and in showing others how to live it, the religious communities active in the Institute on Religious Life have an irreplaceable role in America today. I've tried to suggest in these brief remarks that we can no longer seek to convince ourselves that we live in a society that is neutral regarding the exercise of our Catholic faith. To the contrary, we live in a culture many of whose fundamental assumptions are quite antithetical to living an authentic Catholic sacramental life. In many ways, we are swimming against the tide, and we just need to swim harder. The only sustainable path for Catholics in America is the renewal of Catholic sacramental life. To do that, we must carefully cultivate a Eucharistic life of encounter with our Lord. Alexei de Tocqueville observed in Democracy in America, not only does democracy make every man forget his ancestors, but it hides his descendants and separates his contemporaries from him. 
it throws him back forever upon himself alone and threatens in the end to confine him entirely within the confines of his own heart. But you and I know a greater truth, a higher truth, and that truth is no Catholic heart ever need be alone. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. I hope that this podcast has inspired you and that you will pray along with me for an increase in vocations to the priesthood and religious life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O God, throughout the ages, you have called women and men to pursue lives of perfect charity through the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. We give you thanks for these courageous witnesses of faith and models of inspiration. Their pursuit of holy lives teaches us to make a more perfect offering of ourselves to you. Continue to enrich your church by calling forth sons and daughters who, having found the pearl of great price, treasure the kingdom of heaven above all things. Amen. Thank you and God bless.